Welcome to the Filament Games Podcast, a show dedicated to game-based learning. Here are your hosts, Brandon Pitzer and Dan Norton. Welcome, everybody. Welcome back to the Filament Games Podcast. It's happening. It is happening. I am one of your hosts, uh, Brandon Pitzer. I'm the marketing guy at Filament Games, and that's what I'm going to say from now on because my title has gotten too long and weird. Yeah. And my co-host. That's me. I'm Dan Norton. I'm the game design guy. Yeah, there you go. Game design yeah. guy, marketing guy. Um, so it has been a while uh, since we have done this podcast. In fact, it has been four years yeah. A lot has gone on and a lot has changed. But yeah, what what, has, what's happened, Brandon? Is anything, uh... <laughs> you know, the, the, what has happened is that we have retained our laser focus on the world of game based learning. So that's yeah. what we're here to talk about today. Yeah. Better Call um, Saul came out, right? Uh, that's true. Yeah. Neil C.C. Rega dropped another uh, mouth album. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. BTS took the world by storm. BTS took the world by storm, and then went on hiatus. You know, I just I just saw some of their uh, one of their solo offerings this morning. It was sent to me by our our web and graphic designer. Wait, wait, but now Kenny's talked, but no, no one knows who Kenny is. Oh, right, yes, we have a guest here today. Uh, this is uh, so I'll let him introduce himself. Uh, hello, my name is uh, Kenny Green. I'm one of the production people at the studio. Yeah, so uh, today we're going to um, kind of catch up on what's gone on at Filament for the last four years. Um, going to interview Kenny about a lot of those things, going to interview Dan about a lot of those things. Um, so what do you guys play in these days? That's usually how we kick these things off and warm it up a little bit. Uh, Kenny, let's start with you. What are you playing, man? Oh, I've been playing an awful lot of Valheim recently. Nice. Uh, between Valheim, Slay the Spire, and Rocket League. Uh, that accounts for most of my playtime over the That's last. That's a high quality portfolio, Kenny. Yeah, yeah, it's feeling good. I got I got back into Rocket League a couple weeks ago, and I just forgot how ridiculously good and satisfying that game is when yeah. you get into a groove with it. You know, yeah. when you're not in the groove, it's maddening. But when you get into it, it's oh god, it's so good to play. No, just hitting that flow state, getting uh, feeling like you're making all the touches, hitting the balls, it's going just one with it. It's very good. Yeah, yeah. those epic plays, it's so good. Yeah, I feel like it's a pretty fun game to be bad at, and it's an incredible game to be good at. Like the, <laughs> that's, it has a, a that's nice, really true. Yeah, it has a, an extremely high skill ceiling, but then it also is just like rewarding at any level of play, really, and and yeah. amusing. Yeah, it's good. How about you, Dan? What are you playing? Oh man, you're gonna. Uh, I I just delved into some uh, hipster nonsense. Oh, tell me more. Night. I don't know. It's it's a little known game called Guild Wars One. I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, yeah, a deep cut from from yesteryear. All right. Yeah, I'm playing like a what a 15 year old MMO. Uh, <laughs> it's my first time actually playing with my partner and some other other few other filament folks. Oh, nice, very and, nice. Uh, and and so why Guild Wars One over Guild Wars Two? I'm curious. Um, that's actually sort of what I'm learning while we're doing it. Um, mm, okay. Uh. One of the one of the designers on my team has a great fondness for Guild Wars One, and my partner also played the crap out of it. So we're like, "All right, let's fire it up." So I'm actually kind of at the time Guild Wars was made, sort of as a response to a lot of World of Warcraft mechanics, and a lot of the design decisions are actually extremely novel and interesting even now. So for me, it's like I'm really playing something that feels like a fresh take on the genre, even though it's 
ancient. Uh, As you know, I am also a player of ancient MMOs, and I actually agree. I think there was a lot of, I think the lack of precedent and restraint at that time in the game development world created a lot more uh, unique and original approaches, um, whereas everything kind of gets homogenized into, you know, profit um, mo- yeah. motives at this point and business models. Um you know, marketing people are just the worst. <laughs> it's all their fault. Um, but yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. There's uh, a sort of, um, the, the fact that there's no, uh, you know, precedent to refer to makes a little bit more like creative freedom, I think, mm-hmm. for those developers. And you see some just really unusual and off the beaten path kind of game design ideas Yeah, in, the, in those old in- games. Yeah, in this game, you pick one main class, but then you can actually switch your secondary class. You have two classes, and then it all condenses down into a small set of skills. I think, what, six or seven max? Mm, okay. Uh, and you have to choose which ones are going onto your bar. Once you enter an adventure, they're non-negotiable. Uh, but you can change them up whenever you want, when you're in towns or whatever. Okay. And then you actually can go find rare monsters and kill them to acquire new skills. So yeah. it's like yeah. a very, just a very unusual way to combine the pieces of how you construct a character in a way that feels super fluid. Like your character yeah. really can sort of do anything. All right. Yeah. That, I mean, that sounds awesome. I, I might have to jump into that with you guys. Um, and uh, yeah, I've been, uh, for my part, I've been playing a little bit of uh, Red Dead Redemption 2, which is just an unbelievably cinematic game. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys have uh, played through the story mode on that, but it is mind-blowing. Um, you know, I remember I never got to play it. I just never got around to it. But do you remember reading and enjoying an article about how authentic the bird sounds are in the different regions of the game? Yeah, it, I mean, it, just so atmospheric uh, yeah. on a level that I have not really seen in games before. Um, actually, I would say Valheim actually does a really good job of being atmospheric, too. I think the weather systems uh, in that game, along with the really elegant things they do with light given how lo-fi everything else is they can do mm-hmm. some really cool things with light in that game um, yeah yeah it can be it can be very pretty at times it can be very intense and claustrophobic when the fog sets in at right. night and mm-hmm. yeah it, they, they do a very good job with that for sure All right. Well, uh, there you have it. There, there's uh, the latest on what we're doing um, with our game time. Um, but with our work time, um, we're extremely busy uh, and have been um, for this entire four-year period, uh, believe it or not. So um, we're going to kind of uh, highlight two major areas of discussion today in terms of like just catching up with film and games uh, and also just the larger world of game-based learning, like what kind of trends we're seeing on the work for higher services side, um, what kind of trends we're also seeing on the consumer facing side, because we have a lot more uh, exciting things going on in that realm than we used to, um, for sure. Um, so we're going to start uh, by talking to Kenny about Roboco. So uh, so Kenny, tell me a little bit about like your specific role on the Roboco team and kind of what your day-to-day life looks like there. Yeah. So as the producer for Roboco, uh, my job largely is centered around project management. So it's dealing with the schedule and scheduling woes of trying to coordinate the, how many people are on that team now? Eight. So the the eight different people on the team while also having to get a hold of 
both Dan Norton, Dan White, Alex Stone at various times for various pieces of information that we need from them or sign off on things. Uh, and then trying to keep kind of the whole scope of the game in my head and working with the designer Luke on ways to make sure that we are fulfilling the design promises and goals that we have while maintaining our uh, now extremely tight launch timeline. <laughs> yes, uh, going back again to marketing people being the worst. Um, so yeah, um, we are... Uh, <laughs> You're just <laughs> the messengers at, at that point, Brandon. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's true. Um, although I did make a big stink about, hey, let's put it out this year, maybe. Um, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, we are looking at a Q4 22 uh, launch timeframe for that. So yeah, as Kenny's saying... Um, the, the clock is ticking. Um, we are getting closer and closer to that uh, finish line where we'll be releasing on early access uh, through Steam. Um, and for those of you who don't know, I'm going to do a little bit of housekeeping. Roboco is a wholesome sandbox game about designing and building robots to serve the needs of squishy and hapless humans in the world of tomorrow. And if you've played the game or seen any footage of the game, that you know that those humans are truly squishy and truly hapless, so they do need your help. Um, <laughs> So, um, so yeah, uh, as we proceed towards that Q4 22 launch timeframe, um, we've had a lot of really exciting developments take place. So, you know, Ken is working with the developers, as he mentioned, to facilitate communication, to ensure that logistics are, are on point and, um, none, none of the, uh, sprints are kind of running over, making sure that he's, uh, communicating development changes to the stakeholders as we go, um, so, uh, you know, in that role, Kenny's got kind of like a uh, bird's eye view of everything that's going on at Roboco. So I'd love to know or I'd love to ask Kenny a little bit about um, something that happened uh, a couple years ago now where we started to work with um, uh, collaborate with First Robotics. Um, talk about a little bit of the impact of that and, and kind of how that came about. So obviously we were super excited to have this partnership with First. Um, they're a really widely known name. They are like a super well-respected organization and the opportunity to kind of leverage their knowledge of physical robotics and and have access to their just wealth of experience uh, in bringing robotics to... Uh, one of our goals is robotics for all. Uh, and so being able to leverage the way that they have grown so much and being able to use their uh or tap into their user base oh you know we should probably uh first robotics just for people if you're not familiar with first robotics they are an organization that runs international robotics tournaments for with kids uh they're inside classrooms outside classrooms they're huge and they they run these awesome awesome tournaments where where kids get real firsthand experience with with real engineering to solve problems with robotics. And uh, we're now working with a branch of FIRST to work on essentially the virtual slash digital version of that same mission. That's exactly right. And a couple other cool facts about FIRST Robotics um, and uh, just FIRST in general, which is kind of a, like Kenny said, uh, you know, really prestigious organization with worldwide reach. Um, so they, they were founded um, in 1989 um, and have been leveraging these uh, competitions uh, specifically where you, you're making robots and competing with other students, uh, completing tasks or other uh, participants, I should say, 
um, for that entire time. And the idea is to get students more interested in STEM fields and uh, in, improve their engagement with STEM topics. Um, the program itself reaches about 700,000 students worldwide every year. Uh, so like we said, the, the reach is extremely uh, expansive and um, first students actually show a lot of games in STEM outcomes. You can check out their website for their impact data and everything and their longitudinal studies. But uh, first actually creates uh, usually twice as many um, STEM degrees in the students that go through their program compared to control control groups. Um, likewise, um, twice as many um, engineering and computer science majors are declared by first uh, participants as opposed to comparison groups. Um, so it's extremely impactful pedagogy that draws people into the world of STEM um, in a way that changes their life outcomes. Uh, so it's very powerful stuff. Are there twice as many man-machine hybrids that emerge? Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> twice as twice as many HR Geiger uh, monstrosities. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so um, so that's first. Um, because of the collaboration that we've got with them, um, we've been uh, fortunate to you know open uh, more doors for Roboco. So um, you know because we were able to bring first to the table, we got conversations started with Roblox and with Meta. Um, so you know we'll be bringing the Roboco experience to Roblox later this year. We'll be bringing it to the MetaQuest 2 next year. So, um, and all of that, you know, can be, it, it is in part because of the the quality of the game that's been developed and the concept at hand, but also because we've got this great uh, collaborator in our, in our corner now in the form of first. All right. So um, Kenny, uh, tell me a little bit about um, what's next for Roboco. Um, I think, you know, we just kind of completed um, some big promotional events. We had the OTK event through Twitch where we were featured by Asmon Gold and, and his crew on Twitch. So shout out to those guys and thank you for the feature. That was really impactful for us. Um, and then we had the Steam Next Festival, uh, which is kind of a, a preview event that is run through Steam where people can play the demo. Um, so now we're kind of just like in the, in the final stretch here. So uh, talk a little bit about like what's going on development wise between now and launch. Yeah. Uh, we, like you said, we're in that final stretch now. So a lot of it is just hardening, trying to take feedback from the community that we've gotten so far uh, and apply it to finishing the features that have not yet been finished. Uh, we've got a couple of really cool things that are in flight right now that we're super excited about. One of them is a material system uh, where you can actually change the material of your structural blocks rather than having to pull out a uh, light, medium, or heavy block. Uh, you can kind of change that on the fly so you can mess with your center of mass and the balance of your robot just on the go. Um, so yeah, we're really excited about that one. Uh, we will be working towards some localization. I'm not sure it'll be there for day one, but uh, we're, we're definitely looking for it. We want to make sure that, like I said earlier, robotics for all, we're going to try and make sure we can get this to as many people as we can. Yeah, where are we with uh, with googly eyes at this point? I think we have some googly eyes in there. Okay. There's certainly a box with ridiculous flaps on it. That's true. I think the googly eyes may have been even like a pre-alpha feature. That yeah, was like I think those were like a day I just one wanted to thing. make sure that yeah, <laughs> sort of foundational to the Roboco design in a way. Um, 
Awesome. So it sounds like we're we're working towards greater customization, more granularity, and then just polishing um, yeah. as we get a little bit closer to going out on early access and putting this thing in people's hands, which we're very excited to do. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Um, well, so, you know, as Kenny mentioned, we do have a community that we're working with um, to, to kind of get that feedback. So um, I'm not sure how many playtesting opportunities will occur between now and launch, but there may be some. And the way to be involved with that is to join our Discord. We do have a Roboco Discord, which we will link in the blog post of this podcast, I assume. Um, and then you can click out to that, join the Discord if you're interested, and you can just sit there and and give us feedback, check out the the activity that people have put forward, sign up for play tests, um, and uh, and hang out while we while we come towards while we get towards launch. Okay, so I'm going to switch gears now to work for hire. Um, and talk a little bit about what's going on there, because that remains a robust and uh, perennial part of our business. Um, and a lot of really kind of exciting things are happening on that side of things, too. Um, we have a lot, a lot to be thankful for uh, in that regard. So, um, And Dan Norton, being uh, the chief creative officer, uh, he's got a really, uh, like I said uh, about Kenny, got a bird's eye view on that side of things. So, um, so Dan, let's talk about trends in custom game development for filament Sure. Games. Trends in custom game development. Um, so, one thing you might have noticed, Brandon, is that over the last four years, Filament has gone more remote. Indeed. Indeed, yeah. we, are, we are recording this, <laughs> in fact, from our respective homes. That's true. Yeah. So uh, actually, I think Filament overall has been pretty fortunate with the apocalypse and that we had a pretty flexible work from home remote friendly setup prior to COVID. It's true. So when we actually shut down the office, it was not, it was not, it didn't seem impossible to us to do so. We didn't know. Right. Uh, I remember, I don't remember. I was talking to you, Brandon. I was like, Oh man, is this going to be two weeks or three? <laughs> uh, but you know, we were, we already knew how to get people to log in and we already used synchronous and asynchronous communication tools. So obviously still many things changed, but, uh, uh, we were pretty comfortable with it. And even now we've really found a ton of advantages in the remote work setup, which uh, is somewhat surprising in some ways, but generally really good news. And, and now we're almost more looking at the other side of like, what's, what's missing? What would be great reasons to be less remote? Sure. Uh, but yeah, so that's been, that's been a big a big thing that happens. That's a huge change. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, we are, we are very fortunate to be in a business that, that can weather that change easily to be sure. Um, yeah. I know a lot of other businesses are struggling with productivity sinks and, you know, uh, all the difficulty that comes with, um, being separated. And for the record, I do miss being around you guys. Let's just say that out loud. Um, yeah. <laughs> and that is, uh, you know, certainly part of the trade-off, but, um, but you're right. We, we definitely have, um, kind of uh, rolled with the punches on that one um, and have done a, a really nice job of, of transforming ourselves into a, a dispersed and distributed game development collective. <laughs> what if um, we sent like cardboard 
life-size cutouts of different filament staff, like in a rotating mailing list to people. So, I mean, that'd be fine. It, it wouldn't be quite the same because, uh, you know, I wouldn't see one of those cutouts, like take the last pack of fruit snacks that I wanted or something like that. You know? <laughs> Grab that last car root out of the fridge. Exactly. That would really bring it back to 2019. Um, <laughs> it just made me think of you like in really wrestling with like a Dan Norton cutout on the floor of your kitchen. <laughs> Give me those fruit snacks. And I just get up and I'm like, you know, it's just not the same. Just not the same. <laughs> I got these gushers way too easily. All right. Uh, <laughs> Where did you get gushers? That's the real question. <laughs> what, what time portal are you importing your 90s? snacks from? Holy. There's still gushers. Yeah. Are there? Listen. Oh, absolutely there are. Yeah. I can go to a store and be like, give me your finest gushers. And they'll be like, yes, that's it's- how it works. I mean, we're not in the Gushers heyday, right? Where it was like this whole, there's like a, you know, dozens of Gushers varieties, right? Yeah. It's definitely shrunk down to like, there's like a mixed, like mixed whatever. And then like only strawberry, but you can still wow. get Gushers. Yeah. Wow. I had no idea. Yeah. I, I don't know. I might have to cut this part. This is an embarrassing confession. This No, this is a great, this is great. <laughs> I love it. No, I just uh, want gushers. <laughs> all right. Well, <laughs> noted. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you some, Kenny. Um, okay. Uh, so, but like <laughs> in terms of what we're actually making, um, as we, as we all, uh, you know, work in our respective offices and home offices and, and various coffee shops, um, there's been a few kind of new trends that have emerged on the work for hire side. Um, and one of them that's really interesting to me is the medical technology side of things. Mm. Um, so, uh, Dan, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, without naming any names, because one thing about medical technology work is that it's uh, heavily protected and competitive, right? So we have yeah. a lot of trade secrets in our heads working with mm-hmm. our clients, um, some of whom we can't even mention by name. <laughs> but um, so, you know, with all that being said, we can talk then a little bit about- we can't even say if they have a name. Right. It exactly. may or may not be named. It may not exist. I don't knows. even know if we're working with them. <laughs> We need someone else on this podcast. It was all a dream. <laughs> That's all I can help you with, Brandon. We have to move to the next topic. All right. There well, might be someone working with somebody on a medical product at some point. Okay. No, uh, I can do better. Uh, medicine might exist. Medicine might <laughs> exist. Um, yeah, no, we've had a bunch of really cool projects inside Filament. And I guess the short generalized story is that Filament, uh, I mean, Filament tries to make playful and game-like experiences that impart some type of practice uh, or perspective. Those are very like normal parts of our mission. And as there's been more and more digital technology moving into treatment of medical treatment, there's been a lot of interest in the overlap of whether or not you can use a digital experience to create a therapy. Like, and you have a game embody a practice that's actually a therapeutic practice. And that could be a corrective therapeutic practice for some type of cognitive disability or, or disadvantage, or even a physical therapy if you use tools like virtual reality or motion tracking. Um, so there's a lot of really amazing, impactful therapies that exist in the real world that, that doctors use now. And it's really exciting to be like, are there ways to add technology and tracking and play into that mixture to create new, new powerful forms of therapy to help people? Um, and we're yeah, doing that. Especially when you talk about um, using VR for like physical rehabilitation, I'm reminded of um, 
when the Wii first came out uh, using like Wii sports in, um, for instance, like nursing homes or physical rehabilitation centers um, to create um, intrinsic motivation in the user to do some sort of repetitive motion. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the nice thing about a Wiimote or, uh, Oculus or, you know, MetaQuest controller is these things are extremely light, you know, compared to pretty much any resistance training weight that you would use, but mm-hmm. it still provides a little bit of resistance. So, um, I've, you know, that, that's like a, a very obvious application for that kind of hardware is, um, giving someone that, that motivation and also like a tool for doing repetitive movement, but that doesn't like actually overly tax them. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's totally true. Because like a lot of the time, a lot of the time it's hard to do physical therapy because you're asked to do some type of motion over and over that's very low impact, but you don't really have any kind of sense of purpose or even a guideline on whether you're doing it well. Those are all things where a play experience can sort of kick in with positive feedback and corrective feedback and keep you on target. And not just in that one therapy, but give you a reason to come back again the next day. All right. So create a longer form practice to sure. uh, to get those things like really uh, indoctrinated into your day to day life. Uh, and yeah. that's sort of like bringing in like, I guess you, you could call that like a principle of gamification almost where you're sort of creating a cycle of progress and incentive um, that draws on, you know, classic game design progression. Um designs and, and methodologies. Um, okay. So, uh, so that's, uh, medical technology. I think we are accomplishing a lot of that with, um, VR and AR. So, um, I think that's another topic I'd like to just touch on briefly is like maybe just an update on kind of your, your point of view on where that sits in the world of game-based learning and, um, you know, how we've been participating in those specific media. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, let's see. VR in particular, right? We're still at a really interesting intersection where uh, the tech keeps getting better. We get more headsets that are cooler, more in better pixels, better resolution, better tracking, lighter. We now have uh, devices that no longer need to be corded up to anything else. Um but the user base is still, I would say predominantly in the commercial market, at least uh, an enthusiast base because you need the money to get one and basically a room. You need a room (laughs) that you're willing to be like, this is the room that I flail my arms in. (laughs) And that's what I'm willing to dedicate a room to. So you have to have a very high level dedication to have uh, VR as sort of a uh, personal hobby space. And there's definitely people out there doing it and there's definitely cool stuff being made. But, uh, uh, I think that still, still remains as a meaningful barrier to the point in which people are like, VR is just for just about everybody. We've got cost and convenience are still kind of in the way. Uh, but in terms of the tech and the fidelity of the experience for what you would call a consumer or prosumer tools, holy cow, stuff's pretty good. Um, we're getting to the point, I think, where you're more confronting the new round of what you would define as realism, where you're like, ah, it's frustrating. I can see this entire place, but I can't touch it. Um, or I can move through this space, but I can't do it by actually traversing my legs through a terrain. 
those are actually kind of like the high spike points of like what's between you and having this being an entirely real experience. Um, and that's interesting, right? It means on one hand, it sounds sort of frustrating, like, well, darn, that's still not solved. On other hand, it means the like, can you look around and fool your brain into being content with the idea that you're somewhere else entirely? I think we've hit that. I think that, uh, when you're in VR, you it is obvious to you, you are in a virtual reality environment, but uh, it is real enough that your brain is just parsing as I'm here. How does it work? What am I doing? Um, and when you leave it, you were like, I was there. Right. And that's, I was going to say, I think that's true of anyone who's been in VR long enough to take the headset off and be like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, there's always that jarring moment of like, oh, yeah, I'm in this room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm facing this way now. Yeah, yes, that yeah. too. Like, oh, I thought yeah. I was facing the TV. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Just always makes me think of this time I was playing ping pong with my brother in one of the headsets and uh, he went to lean on the table to get a nice little drop shot I did. Yes. And there was, in fact, no table there. No table. You went straight uh, to the ground. <laughs> this is this is why VR uh, billiards just doesn't work. You know, it's like every time someone's like, "We should try pool in VR." I'm just like, that yeah. sounds, you have to lean." I can't imagine. I'd need a harness of some kind. You know, no, you just uh, walk through the table at that point. You just stand in the middle of the table. I I I'm not sure if I've told the story before, but one of our developers years ago, Alexander Cooney. If you're if you're out there, Cooney, I love you. Hope you're doing well. Hey, Cooney. Uh, uh, was doing a bunch of VR work at Filament, and they were in in doing dev inside VR for long enough that they took the headset off and then realized they'd like dropped a pen on the ground under a table. But at this point, they were so used to the idea that they could pass through any material that they wanted to. Oh no! That he just leaned down to pick up the pencil and and just like collided his head directly into the table. Uh, <laughs> So it had like the inverse of your situation, Kenny, rather than someone being like, ah, yes, that's a physical object I can interact with. Cooney was in there long enough where he's like, physical objects don't exist anymore. Yeah. He's like, who turned the clipping back on? <laughs> yeah. Who turned clipping on? <laughs> I turned on no clip. Yeah. Uh, hilarious. Yeah. So uh, that is amazing. Trying to live real life with wall hacks. Let's go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, one other point on the VR and AR for schools and just educational purposes, you know, purposes beyond commercial uh, entertainment, um, one major development that I think is very promising in that realm is just recently, July 7th, uh, Meta announced that their head headsets would no longer require a Facebook account to log in. Um, what? Yeah, this was so they announced back in October 2020 that you would need a Facebook account. To, I remember that. Yeah, and that was an extremely controversial decision. And they have now since changed it back to um, you will use a meta account, um, which can optionally be linked to your Facebook, but um, it does not have to be. And what that means, um, if, if you're not aware, um, if, if the folks listening aren't aware, um, K-12 institutions are governed by these legislative um, uh, policies, uh, namely CURPA, uh, FERPA and COPPA. And um, yeah, they're horribly named. Um, CURPA and PAPA. For, yeah, Purpa. Purpa, Derpa and COPPA, PARPA. Um, 
<laughs> but anyways, so the, these That's better. Yeah. these policies, um, they stipulate that you cannot store personally identifiable information about a student in your database um, because that's how serious we are in this country about protecting student privacy, which I applaud. Um, but of course, that creates uh, you know a burden on software providers, as uh, particularly ed tech providers, to be cognizant and compliant. Uh, with those laws. And so um, having a Facebook account be a mandatory uh, element of logging into a MetaQuest mm -hmm. essentially makes it so that the MetaQuest will never succeed in schools ever because you are mandating personally identifiable information to be attached yeah. to the device. Fascinating. Um, so uh, having changed this policy, now the MetaQuest 2 is actually a viable piece of hardware, again, for a K-12 classroom. And it is also priced um, you know, like a Chromebook, which is, as we know, is, is hugely popular in K-12. More than 60% of K-12 schools have Chromebooks. Um, so all of that is to say that, you know, that we have a much more promising future for VR and institutional education than we used to back when they changed this policy, now that they've changed it back. Um, so yeah, that's a very exciting development to talk that's about. That's dope. I didn't know that. I, would, I, I didn't know that at all. That's great. Yeah, I think a lot of folks have gone out to, you know, get a quest <laughs> on the basis of that information. I saw quite a few people being like, oh, hey, this changes everything <laughs> for me. Um, so that's really cool. Um, okay, so uh, next thing I wanted to touch on is actually uh, specific, um, some specific client work that we've done um, with the folks up at Twin Cities. Um, just want to check in on all the cool work that we've done with Twin Cities Public Television, um, particularly their Hero Academy games. Um, so uh, Norton or, or Kenny, which other, whichever of you has the most knowledge about this, <laughs> um, what's the latest on those projects? Yeah, so we worked on uh, making some really cool games with them uh, on a franchise they're working on, Hero Academy. And one, it was super interesting and challenging work because we worked with them while the IP itself was in development. So we were making strange kind of shadow box games where we're like, we don't know what these characters are going to look like. And we're going to come back and art and IP these suckers up after we get through mechanics. Um, mm -hmm. Well, we worked with their content team. Uh, there's a, also a fantastic team of designers who work at TPT. So uh, it was a really cool project. And um, I don't know if you've got the numbers around you, Brandon, but I know that when they actually put these out across the PBS game portals and stuff, they they were big, big hits. Uh, and, uh, he, you know, we really, Filma loves working on stuff that actually reaches people and gets a real impact part of what we do so working with tpt was an absolute delight because uh we got to make really cool stuff with cool people that a bajillion children then consumed and uh that was great yeah as of um the latest the latest report i have on this is um from around this time last year um but at that point we had accumulated about 12.5 million plays across all the different games that we made with them that's impressive right just think about yeah. that's that's a lot of eyeballs <laughs> that's that's at least 24 million eyeballs yeah those are great exciting numbers um and yeah i think that you know one of the really cool things about that project is just working on you know ip that has a fate outside of the world of games it's it's an actual show um for kids uh yeah. that, that kind of covers uh science topics on pbs kids um mm -hmm. 
so that was a super cool opportunity for us. Um, Would you say in some ways that that we we are now part of the PBS metaverse? Yeah, I think so. This is yeah. we're, we are now in the PBS cinematic universe. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Alongside, I don't know who else is in there. Clifford, the entire cast of Sesame Street. Uh, I don't know, Arthur. <laughs> Was PBS? I'm not sure. I was going to ask Arthur, Doug? Was Doug PBS? No, Doug wasn't PBS. No, Doug was no. Nickelodeon. And then Arthur was PBS. The, the second Doug? Not good, you guys. Not good. Oh, I didn't even know that happened. Yeah, there was like old Doug. <laughs> I don't that? know if that need. Why did that need to happen? I don't know. It was a truly unnecessary moment in adolescence. Is that like the subtitle of the series? Like Doug 2, totally unnecessary. <laughs> Doug too. He's old now. Yeah. Um, no, what happened? <laughs> no, he was he was like an adult Doug. Um, mm-hmm. Doug. I'm trying to remember now. Um, Did he marry uh, Patty? I don't remember actually. Or was he bitterly divorced from Patty? <laughs> I don't think so. Okay. Um, I mean, I guess they could have had some fun and like get get a little dark with stuff would have been something yeah agree, agree. that's what everyone that's what everyone has been asking for they're like give me the dark timeline doug <laughs> sequel that's what people wanted we need christopher nolan directed doug yeah. <laughs> apparently disney bought doug yes yes all right of course yeah that's the doug history <laughs> there needs yeah. to be a list of things disney does not yet own that is an easier to manage list that is valid. Yeah. Oh, they don't. They don't yet own filament. I guess we're on the list. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Maybe someday will be Doug. Uh, <laughs> I'm always saying. Um, okay. So um, let's see. We got about ten minutes left here in our recording hour. Um, I want to touch on uh, two other things, which is um, one: we continue to work with our great friends at iCivics. So Norton, can you just give us a little update on what's going on with iCivics? What's the latest? What's good? Oh man. Uh, we just keep on making stuff over and over. It's a killer. Uh, we still, uh, we're still working with Carrie Ray Hill, who I know has been on for the, for the incredibly long-term podcast listeners. I think we had her on at least twice. Um, yeah. Uh, so we're still working closely with her and the iCivics team right now. We're working on a revamp of people's pie the exciting game about the federal budget where everybody uh, eats eats pie that represents the money that the United States government has. Uh, just did some user testing on that. That's going well. And then uh, we've got another unannounced title coming up in a few more in a few months to start on too. So excellent. Uh, as per usual, go check out iCivics.org, one of our coolest, longest lasting partner relationships we're so proud of all the things that we've made with them it continues to be i think an exemplar of really what's possible with a game-based learning program absolutely and i think we've been doing some really exciting um you know given that we're returning from a four-year gap like i can speak to some of the changes and uh expansions of what we've done with them so um you know we've worked on some new entirely new kinds of games. Um, so one game in particular, I'd, I would want to shout out as newsfeed defenders, uh, oh, a very, yeah. uh, cool experience where, um, students are basically tasked with, um, improving their media literacy. So they're fighting hidden ads. They're 
they're parsing deceptive, um, false reporting, and uh, basically trying to figure out how to be more empirical in their understanding of the world. <laughs> so, so there you have it. And then um, another uh, really cool thing that we've been doing more of um, on the iCivic side is just accessibility features. Um, for for both just general accessibility um, for folks who may be differently abled, um, and then um, as well uh, ESL features, so um, language learning stuff for folks who um, you know may speak uh, Spanish as their primary language and um, can kind of both work on their language skills and deepen their understanding of these civics topics. They're very excited about those uh, two new um, sort of development outcomes that we've had with them is getting a little bit more into um, kind of of the moment topical issues um, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, expanding the accessibility of these games to really be as inclusive as we possibly can with these topic areas. All right. And then uh, lastly, this is just a bit of a teaser for the next episode. Um, we're working on another very exciting kind of game um, that is uh, very special and unique to our region. Um, and that's the cow game. So Norton, can you give me a quick teaser about the cow game? Yeah, Brandon, in, in your life, have you ever found yourself in a spot where there's a cow that needed it, needed it to be in another location, but you were like, I don't know how to move that cow humanely and safely, both for its well-being and my own? As someone from Wisconsin, that happens to me on virtually every day. That's right, every day, just getting to work. Or even just leaving your own apartment, right? It's just a part in of the, the reality of the Wisconsin lifestyle. <laughs> uh, this game is absolutely going to annihilate that that need in your life. Um, okay, no, so I'll do a better job on Rick's explaining that. So uh, we're working with uh, UW Madison, uh, a, 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 a professor there named Jennifer Van Oss, and. Uh, of the Department of Animal and Dairy Sciences. There you go, yeah. And she's working on a project to create training materials for farmers to show them the humane and safe ways to guide cattle so they don't resort to yelling, kicking, shoving, uh, or all sorts of things that might occur to you when a cow is standing there and refuses to move. Um, there actually is a set of pretty elegant behaviors that cows like to conform to about how they manage their personal space. And if you use that information in a savvy way, you can guide cows without ever harming them. So uh, this is uh, some training material that's supposed to go to real farmers who actually think about these problems uh, and give them the tools they need to do a better job for themselves and their herd. And it's really cool. Uh, for the next podcast, um, we will actually have that client uh, in, in the studio, so to speak, um, Jennifer Van us, uh, the assistant professor and extension specialist in animal welfare, uh, like we said at the UW-Madison uh, Department of Animal and Dairy Sciences. So tune in next time uh, for that one, and we'll dive deep on that project and her background. All right. So lastly, we've got a new segment to close out the show, and that's Game Design Rarities, where either Dan Norton or myself digs deep into our ancient cobwebby attics that are brains and uh, look for games that are off the beaten path, uh, represent an unusual design approach, um, or are simply interesting in terms of how they make us think about game design.
Um, so uh, for this week's segment, I believe Dan Norton is going to talk a little bit about Wilmot's Warehouse. Wilmot's Warehouse. So shout out to member of my design team, Vian Nguyen, who put this game on my radar. Uh, this game is fascinating. Uh, you can get it on Steam. Uh, in it, you play a square. And your job is that you're basically managing the inventory of a giant warehouse. And it's sort of like an Amazon warehouse, let's say, in which a truck pours a pile of objects that are also squares that are different colors and have different pictures on them. And you have a certain amount of time to arrange those things in piles that you think are logically coherent for you. And then orders start coming in and, and uh, people come up and request five or six of those things at once. And you have to run around your warehouse, remember where you put the things based on whatever rules you thought seemed good at the time uh, and deliver those things in the time limit allotted. Um, and it's, it's a game that I absolutely can't defend. If someone says, I hate this <laughs> because it's more or less a visual timed spreadsheet exercise. <laughs> um, but you do have complete agency over your sort of methodology of warehouse organization. And I think that's what makes it neat. You're like, hmm, I'm going to go by predominant color or I'm going to go by object theme. Like the object sometimes like there's like, a sewing needle and a thread and like a button are all things you can have pictures of. You're like, Ooh, I'll make a sewing section, right? That could be how you want to do it. Okay. Um, so you have, you have to make some creative decisions that the game doesn't judge you on at all about how you arrange your space. And then you have to navigate it. Uh, it has, I think some light, you know, uh, we live in a society commentary, like, <laughs> The, the grind is relentless in the game. All, you unlock like motivational posters. That's <laughs> okay. pretty, you know, like, so sure. there's a little bit of like, well, is this hell? Um, <laughs> uh, but they're not too heavy handed with it, right? It doesn't get all like papers, please, or anything. Sure. It's just you're just jamming out on your warehouse and trying to run it as efficiently as possible. Uh, there's upgrades where you can become faster or you can lift more or you can knock out some of the walls in your warehouse to make it easier to create piles. So there's like a, a ownership over an upgrade trajectory. It's very simple, very clean, a very unusual game. Um, and it's a game that uh, I think what's neat about it is that it doesn't sound fun at all. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, you really haven't sold me so yeah. far. <laughs> it reminds me, I had a friend once who tried to get me to watch the British office back when that was new. And he's like, oh, you'll love it, Dan. In the beginning, there's just like footage of, of a copier. That's really true, though. <laughs> and that's it. And uh, I was like, oh, sure. Thanks, Trevor. I'll, I'll check it out. Uh, I did check it out. It was amazing. But uh He's right, though. They, they brilliantly use uh, printing and just like shuffling papers and stuff as yeah. like transitional scenes on that yeah. show. It's, yeah, yeah. He wasn't wrong. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, and I think I think I may have performed the same service today for Wilmot's Warehouse. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Check it out. It's like a spreadsheet that you live inside. 
Yeah, surely, surely someone is 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 intrigued by this. Yeah. So, hey, me... we made spreadsheet the game, and that game was awesome. That's true. That's true. Um, you know, and I recently watched the debut video for Microsoft Excel, and I found it very compelling. It was exciting. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at one point, spreadsheets were exciting to everyone. Um, I mean, it's definitely. Uh... Actually, yeah, I'm glad Kenny's here. There's two teams at Filament that are passionate about spreadsheets. That's production and design. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's, that is a spreadsheets are a superpower that uh, everyone should figure out how to leverage in their lives. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, with that impassioned plea to embrace the art of the spreadsheet, I believe today's podcast yeah. is winding to a close. Um, so, Kenny, thank you so much for coming and joining us for today's podcast and discussing with us about what's gone on in the last four years. We really appreciate you. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And uh, thank you, everyone, for tuning back in. Um, we will be back uh, soon um, with our uh, second episode of season four, uh, where we're going to talk, uh, like I said, with Jennifer Van Oss about moving cows. So we will see you all then. Thanks for listening to the Filament Games podcast. If you like to hear more about games, game-based learning, and what's happening at our studio, subscribe today on iTunes or Stitcher. And be sure to visit us at our website, filamentgames.com.